Hi, guys. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I am your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's episode was extremely eye-opening for me on a very personal level. I had talked with this author several months ago about being a guest on the podcast and had had it on the calendar for a while. And I had his book, and I basically binge-read it over the past few days, and it was an incredible eye-opener. And then when I got him on the phone for the recording, he used an analogy about a roller coaster (laughs) that really floored me and put a lot of my current life and situation into great perspective. So I'm looking forward to you guys getting to hear it. This is uh, David Leet. This is the guest on the show for today. He's a food writer, cookbook author, and a web publisher. He's a James Beard Award winner for his website. Um, He won that in 2006 and 2007, and I'll post the links to all of his accolades up on the show notes. And when no one is looking, he apparently still dances in his underwear in the kitchen. (laughs) But he, the reason we are talking with David is for his incredible new book called Notes on a Banana, a memoir of food, love, and manic depression. This book is just a fantastic read. It's hilarious, and it's poignant, and it's sad and wonderful all at once. And um, I hope you guys just enjoy it. Enjoy the interview and pick up a copy of the book because it's, it's a great read. So sit back and enjoy this interview with David Leet. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Today's guest is David Leet, author of the book Notes on a Banana, a memoir of food, love, and manic depression. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode. This is Meredith Atwood. It's great to be here today with David Leet. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So David is the author of Notes on a Banana, which is a fantastic book. I just finished it this morning, and it had me laughing and crying and feeling hopeful and scared and panicked and hopeful and funny all at once. It's just like a gauntlet of emotions. But one of the main things about it is that it is truly, truly a funny book. So well done, David. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. One of the things I loved so much um, is obviously the title of the book is is kind of a play on words in in two two areas because number one, your nickname as a child from your mother was banana, exactly, and that was so adorable. It just tickled me. And then they would your parents would leave you notes on a banana. (laughs) Yes, every morning I would wake up and at the at my spot at the breakfast table would be a banana that my mother had written on. And one end would say, we love you. The other one would say, God bless. And in the middle part, which is like the big real estate part, would be something that would relate to the day. So it'd have a, it'd be, have a good day, do well on your geometry test, break a leg <laughs> tonight on the show. Uh, I've even gotten them. She still does them. So I was home a couple of days ago and I got what a banana that said, good luck on the television show. Cause I was being interviewed <laughs> on the news. So she still does that. She does it for my dad. She does it for my partner, Alan, when he goes up there and visits. It's just wonderful. I love it so much. And I love the nickname banana. I call my kids monkey and, um, funny Mm -hmm. nicknames, but banana is such a great one. Um, so talk a little bit about your childhood. Um, I love the way that you portray your parents in the book. It's, it's, it's so endearing and 
And funny. You know, the book's just so funny. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up. Well, it was, I think really it was, it was the stuff of sitcoms uh, because we had a house. Um, we called it, everyone back then called uh, this kind of a house a tenement. And of course, that's gotten such a bad name these days because of all of those, as I say in the book, all of those PBS uh, documentaries on Lower East Side Squalor. But um, the tenement that we grew up in was a very sizable home. It had th- actually four apartments. One wasn't used. And we used the, the remaining three. And it was my, my mother, my father, myself on the second floor, my godmother, my godfather, my cousin Barry, and later my cousin Wayne on the first floor in the front, and my grandmother and grandfather, the first floor in the back. Plus, there was this extended family of other cousins and uh, aunts and uncles that were always around. But there was always this tumult of activity and fun and craziness. We would be eating in one apartment, then another apartment. And my godmother, she cooked. uh, She always said she was French. And I thought she was French from France until I was much older. And I realized she meant French Canadian. But she had a lot of foods that she would make from her French Canadian background. And there was Portuguese with my mother and my grandmother. So there was this revolving, revolving cuisine and revolving doors. I mean, there was doors slamming constantly as we went from one apartment to the next to the next. And as I say in the book, we were children of the neighborhood because it extended to the neighborhood, our, our part of Brownell Street in uh-huh. Fall River, Massachusetts, where every mother in that entire block was our mother. So if they wanted to order us around, they ordered us around. And right. every father was our father. And so we were very protected. Um, and I say in the book also that if there was a kid from another another block who came over and started wailing on one of us, all of our mothers would just fly off from their, their porches and start <laughs> just shouting down that mother and shouting down that kid. So it reminds me of uh, the song People in um, Funny Girl. What she says, just watch one kid fall down and seven mothers faint. <laughs> and that, that's what, that's the kind of, uh, that was what my childhood was like. Well, and I love the part where you talk about how your mother had like that winning whistle where it could be heard for seven blocks oh, and yes. everyone looked at you every time <laughs> she whistled. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's, how do that you was, that was the, like that. I have wanted I to don't learn. know. And my mother is almost 80 and she can still do it. It's amazing. <laughs> It's so amazingly loud, and it was how she called me home. And if the rule was, you know, I she whistles once, I run, and if she whistled <laughs> twice, I was really tempting fate. And as I say in the book, I never went for the third whistle. No. I was about to figure out what that was. That but meant no every, more notes all the on kids, your bananas. <laughs> yeah, all the kids in the neighborhood and even farther away knew that when that whistle went. I went home. I love it. I love it. So when did you, you talk about when you started to use words and descriptions, um, that mm-hmm. that kind of became your thing. What age mm-hmm. did you, re- well, and, or you said you wanted to become a writer and you started writing a, a story about pirates or something, but what, right. what age was that? Like nine? That was about, I'd, um, I would say between nine and, and nine and 10, I would say maybe even a, a little older, maybe 11. Uh, and because uh, right, right now, at the top of my head, I'm trying to picture in the book where it is, and I can't. And I know what the story is. I just can't picture the timeline now. But it was around that time, and uh-huh. I remember my mother. I said, "I want to be a writer," and uh, it had to be after 11 years old. And so my mother just surprised me with the old Indian head tablets and a pen, 
And I began writing a story about pirates, and I realized by the bottom of the first page, I knew nothing about pirates. <laughs> and I wasn't about to write about pirates if I didn't know anything about them. And I just threw the tablet in my bottom drawer. And that was the end of my writing career. I think it lasted all of maybe 25 or 30 minutes. And that was the end of the career. And it was finally when I started seeing a psychologist after I began having panic attacks at age 11. It started when I saw the film House of Wax with Vincent Price. And they didn't abate. They just kept on going on. So I started seeing a psychologist when I was, I think, just about turning 14, uh, mm-hmm. 13 and a half to 14. And you had asked and your was, mom, right? You had asked her to go. I did. Yeah. It was so much pain. I was in so much pain that I actually threatened suicide. I said, if you don't let me see a psychiatrist, I will kill myself. And I knew that I wouldn't kill myself. It was a hollow threat for me, but I knew it wouldn't be for them. It was the only way that I could let adults know that I was in so much pain because my parents had tried everything. They saw me. I, I was had, having insomnia. My grades plummeted. I wasn't eating. I'd lost weight. They did not know what was wrong with me, and they did everything in their power to be able to figure it out. My dad would take me to sleepovers. He'd travel like 30 minutes, 40 minutes sometimes to take me somewhere for a sleepover, drop me off, drive back home 30, 40 minutes. An hour later, I would call and say, I'm too scared. I can't do this. He'd have to come back and pick me up. So in three hours, he'd be traveling two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom started a bowling league just so I'd have something to do. And so they tried everything. And finally, I had to I had to use that 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 ace in the hole by saying I would kill myself. And that got me to a hospital. It got me evaluated. But they evaluated me with generalized anxiety disorder because back then they didn't believe that children – it wasn't a widely held belief that children could have bipolar disorder that young. They felt mm-hmm. it's something like schizophrenia that happened in the, their late teens, early 20s, a lot of times when they separated from their parents to go to college. And so – So going back to the whole language element, it was with that psychologist as I tried to explain to him, and also I tried to explain to my parents and other adults what was going on with me, that's when this love of language started happening. Because I noticed that I was able to describe to him things like, um, it's as if I'm looking at life through the wrong end of a telescope. I remember saying that to him mm-hmm. and I was just 13 or so. And uh, that hot, it was like having hot molten lead being poured on my chest and sparks being kicked up, up my esophagus, trying to describe it. Cause I felt if I describe this as well as possible mm-hmm. and as, in as many different ways as possible, someone's bound. And it was then that I started to see and hear the power of words. And I, that's when I think I started falling in love with language. Because that was the because you knew something was wrong and definitely and so I, I just love that because and, and you do an amazing job of describing in this book just the feelings and the emotions and what was so surprising to me is how many years you spent with your psychologist and then you went to another one before you actually got your diagnosis when and you actually yeah. you diagnosed yourself. Let's let's talk about that, and then I kind of want to talk about the rest of the book in your life. I guess in the context of the, you like to call it manic depression, don't you? I do. I think mm-hmm. manic depression is so much more descriptive of what I experience. Bipolar or bipolar disorder, which is the correct terminology nowadays, I guess the politically correct terminology, right. it doesn't tell you the poles in which you're going back and forth. And yet people generally know 
what it is, but I think manic depression really just hits home of what I experience. Yeah. And yes, it took me 25 years to get diagnosed and I diagnosed myself from the first time when I ran out of that movie theater at 11 years old, House of Wax, a children's matinee. And uh, I just freaked out until I was 36 or so when I was diagnosed and I diagnosed myself. And then I did go to a doctor at um, Columbia University Medical Center to become to get evaluated, to hear what he had to say, to make sure that I was on the right track. It was 25 years. It was a very long, long journey to figure out what was wrong with me. And once you received that, or once you read that book, whose book was that? It was... Um... Kay Redfield Jameson's yes. An Unquiet Mind. An Unquiet Mind. That book is fantastic. I read that a couple years ago as well. Um, but once you read that book, did you feel like a million pounds were lifted off, off of you? Because you said, this is me. This is what yes. is going on. I wanted to start dancing because I felt it it explained everything. Because I guess because of this, or maybe just it's my personality, I've always liked to understand things. And, and, and figure out what causes what and the causation of things. So as each one of these breaks or breakdowns happen throughout my life and every time these periods of anxiety, because anxiety plays a big part in my bipolar disorder, my manic depression, when each of these happened, I tried to add to what I call the theory of explanation. And it kind of grew almost like this big cancerous tumor because it just – it tried to encompass so many different things, and no, it was never explaining everything. Mm-hmm. And so, the more I so for a while there, I thought, oh, it's because um, I might be gay, and that's the reason why I'm having all these feelings. But then, when I accepted the fact that I was gay, these things kept on happening. Then I thought, well, maybe it's because I, I'm a creative individual or something like that, and I'm 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 just sensitive. And but that never really made sense. And. I was told, well, it has to do with the fact that, you know, movies and movies are a trigger and he sees all of his, this is what the, the first doctor said, is he, it sees all of his um, his fears and anxieties and aggressions played out big on tet- in Technicolor on the screen. But that didn't make sense either because I became a big fan of movies later on. Mm-hmm. So when the manic depression diagnosis did come down and I started to study it and see what it what it was and the symptoms, I started to realize Every single thing that happened could be tucked neatly under the arc of manic depression. And that's mm-hmm. when I went, this is really, this has been my issue all along. It was, it gave a label and a voice to what was your truth. Exactly. And once I, once I knew what that label was and once I knew what that truth was, I then could go about getting well. Mm-hmm. But you can't get well if you don't know what the problem is. Right. And and so many people want to tell you, you know, you're dramatic or you're sensitive or, or you're you're depressed. And I remember yes. somewhere in the book, you, one of your uh, doctors, you slammed your hands down on the chair and screamed, I'm not depressed. What do I have to be depressed yes. about? And that is a huge misconception in, in mental illness. You know, I think a lot of people who suffer say, what in the world do I have to be depressed about? But it's not yes. about that. Not at all. When you look at someone's life or look at my life, I had a partner at that time, maybe like eight years or six years. Uh, we were doing well. We're together now for 24 years. I had a great job that was paying me very well. So money wasn't an issue. Um, you know, all of the trappings that that people, you know, have or, or, or strive for. We had a 
an apartment in the city. We had a, a house in the country. We had pets. It was just a very full life, friends. So what did I have to be depressed about? The thing is, my doctor, and that was David Lindsay Griffin, he was right. He was half right. He saw the depression years before I ever could embrace it. Mm-hmm. And it was finally, he's the one who said, you're going to have to prove to me you're manic depressive because I don't see and have never seen you be manic. And I think he was true. I never really presented a lot of mania to him because I have what's called hypomania. I have bipolar two, which is a lesser form, a more mild form. So the manias are hypomania. They're, they're less than full-blown mania. And so mania and, can often be described as highly productive. <laughs> mm-hmm. and well, yes, in bipolar yeah. two. Yes. Uh, the doctor who did diagnose me, who evaluated me, said, you know, what's really hard to distinguish, especially with someone like you, who is a type A personality, it's very hard to determine, is it a personality issue or is it a chemical issue? And because, you know, type A people are assertive, aggressive, creative, they're big, they, 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 they're loud, they, whatever they are, uh, a lot of those characteristics are very much part of uh, hypomania. Mm-hmm. And so it was uh, the distinction between a personality trait and a chemical imbalance that made the difference for me. So I was squeaking by on what looked like a real type A personality, right. real big and fun and loud and gregarious and creative and assertive and sometimes aggressive. But what was happening was it really was hypomania because I had those big depressions. Well, I think you described it like when you were getting closer to, to self-diagnosis, I think you described your life as this is an extroverted time or this is an introverted time when that was really, this is a depressive versus a manic streak. Exactly. I had two terminologies, uh, two sets of terminology that I would use introverted, extroverted, quiet self and loud self. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize what I was saying. I look back on it now and going, how could I possibly have missed this? But I never was thinking that I had a mental illness. So it never dawned on me, but I would write about the quiet self or the loud self or the introverted me and the extroverted me. And I remember I would go through periods. This is when I had moved back, moved to New York now. So it was, um, it was in my mid-20s, late-20s. There would be times where all I wanted to do as soon as I got home from work was go right home, bury myself in a book, and if it were the wintertime, be under covers and be happy and not see anybody. And this could go on for weeks. And then there were times where suddenly, for no apparent reason, I want to go to the gym. I want to go out with friends afterwards. I want to go out to a club. I want to go walk down Christopher Street with my two best friends who were gay and have a fabulous time walking down the street and like trying to laugh at all the boys and and do all these kind of wonderful, big, over-the-top things. And then suddenly, I was back to reading on my couch alone. Mm -hmm. And that was the introverted self and extroverted self that I was talking about. And, you know, a lot of times I've, I've talked to creative people And they have these sort of incubative times where they incubate ideas and where they're hibernating and and it's where they renew themselves. And so even that, it was being confused with my therapist. He said, these could be the times in which you need to refuel and you need to refresh yourself and recreate yourself. And then when you're ready and you feel that you've done that, you then come out and you start interacting with the world. So we were looking at it in that term, Mm -hmm. but it still didn't explain it. And it didn't explain how anxiety fit into this whole 
misogas of feelings. And I finally came to understand the role that anxiety for me played. And so what was that role? Was that what fed the depression? No, actually, for me, if you imagine a roller coaster, so it starts out and it's, it's level and flat as you start, and then that's just life normal. And then it starts to go up the first big hill. And the first hill is always the biggest. Right. So you're going up this hill. That's when I start to get a little bit hypomanic. I start to speak a little faster. I start to speak a little bit more articulately. My vocabulary gets a little bit bigger. I become funnier. This is when you want to get invited. As I say in the book, this is when you want to get invited to our house for a dinner party. <laughs> because it's a, we are great hosts, but it's even greater. I will kill myself to make this incredible dinner and you'll really enjoy yourself. But then it starts going up higher and higher and things start spinning faster and faster. Then I get to a point where you're almost reaching the top of that hill, that first hill, and I start to get irritable. I start to get angry. The world is moving too slow and spinning too slow for me. People are dumb and they're idiots and they don't <laughs> understand me. And it, I just get really mean and I get it, it's it's painful. And then I reach the very, very top and there's this explosion of anxiety. And it's as if there is not a, a graceful going all the way down the hill. It's it's the it's imagine just two two rails just poking into the sky and it stops and the car goes right off and goes straight down, crashes down into depression. Mm -hmm. So anxiety for me, I say is like a switching station between mania and depression. When I look back on all the major problems I've had or the major breaks that I've had, when I've had these big explosive, you know, earth shattering panic attacks and periods of panic, they were always preceded by extreme, extreme energy expenditure of spending weight, spending too much time awake, not getting enough sleep, working too hard, uh, spending too many hours at work, just going, really going at it too hard. And always, always precedes that. So it's that incredible expenditure of energy, the explosion of anxiety, and that plummeted into depression. But the depression also had some anxiety into it in it, which also confused it. But now that I understand that, when I start to hear or feel here, when I start to feel the anxiety, I hear it as a siren. It's mm -hmm. like a siren bell, like a uh, a siren for a tornado. And I realize that something is going on. And I look at my activity. Have I been too busy? Have I been too active? Have I not slept enough? Have I been too irritable? And if I start seeing that, I start to pull back on things. And then I, I pull a little bit of that introverted self, but I do it purposely now as a, as a way of saving myself. There's so much here. I mean, I, <laughs> I resonated so well with your story. Um, just a lot of your childhood experiences. And I, a couple of years ago, I was diagnosed as bipolar. Mm -hmm. Um, and I did nothing with that except I was on some major drugs for about six weeks that made me insane. And then I just pretended like it never happened. But right. the way you just described that roller coaster, I understand exactly a thousand percent what that is. I think, um, I've done a really great job managing myself with what you said, when you can kind of feel that anxiety starting to hit. And, and yeah, you know, yeah. that's when I'm like, okay, I have to nap. <laughs> and I find yes. that if I take a two hour nap, it will stop. And it, it seems so simple, but I want to talk more about, you know, once you got the diagnosis, what mm -hmm. interventions saved you? Because that's where I think, um, 
that's where I've been lost on, on my journey, I know, because every time mm-hmm. I've been put on any sort of medication, it makes me just a shell of a version of myself. And I'm not productive and I'm, um, you know, it, it's it just, that's where I just fall apart on it all. So I'd love to hear how your success with um, your treatment has kind of made you well, who you are. Well, it, you know, methic medication is a very important part of it, but it took me four years to find the right combination. So mm-hmm. it, I, I definitely um, can comm- commiserate with you on how difficult it is uh, because I, I was trying all these different meds and it wasn't, nothing really was moving. The needle wasn't moving very much and I was having these horrible side effects. Right. And so that it was one of the things that you, I had, I knew I had to do something because if it is a chemical imbalance, that has to be corrected. I, I can't, I can't will a chemical imbalance in my brain to change. That's something I cannot will. I'm not that powerful. I'm not that good. So right. medication was really the most important thing to start out with. So it took four years to find that. But in the course of those four years and those years since, because it's been about 21 years that I've been on medication, uh, what I started to do is find those things that do help for me. You talk about sleep. Sleep is the great resetter for yeah. someone who has bipolar. Getting regular sleep, going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time if possible is really crucial because they find there's just been a lot of studies showing that that is is a great resetter. And also for someone who's having terrible depression and they're manic depressive, they've also found there are some studies that have shown that if they stay awake for a certain amount of time, like 24 hours or 36 hours and then go to sleep, that can break that cycle of depression um, for manic depressive. So. Sleep is very, very important. Of course, nutrition is very important. Now, I don't follow this that well, and I'm trying to very hard now. As I've gotten older, and I have spent two decades of being a food writer and eating anything put in front of me, <laughs> I do have some health issues related to food. And eating well, eating uh, clean proteins, pasture-raised uh, meats, if you can get them where you live, is very important. Lots of greens, lots of fruits, no sugar, no grains whatsoever. Yeah. So that means Those are no pasta. Major contributors no, that sugar and grain. I, absolutely. Huge. Yeah. I also try to stay away from dairy. I think dairy can contribute. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there was actually an article by a gentleman. I want to say it was in Forbes magazine or New York uh, Newsweek magazine. Excuse me. Who actually treats him treats his manic depression with food. Mm-hmm. And uh, but those are the big things to stay away from the sugar, all grains in the dairy, and also alcohol too, especially yeah. for on medication. Yeah, and exercise, which I'm trying to do now more. Um, even walking is very good; it clears your head, getting those endorphins going in your body, which does help. Uh, talk therapy is really important because once you understand that you have manic depression, you now have to understand how to manage that how to interact with people because i always thought when i was yelling at people they just were dumb or they just couldn't figure it out they weren't as bright as me or they weren't as creative as me and i i i used i I was seeing myself in a certain way of being superior or or being different or being creative or being other than people Mm -hmm. once i realized part of what's going on with me yes i am creative and yes i am different with my own way of thinking but i there was too much blood to mop up behind me, if you will, after an argument right. uh, with someone. Not that I physically hurt them, but you know, uh, metaphorically speaking, there was lots of blood to mop up. And so, going through going 
to talk therapy with someone who understands manic depression can help you adjust better to having the illness and allows you to be able to interact with people in a way that is in your best interest, learning what to stay away from, learning what your triggers are. You mean when you say what to stay away from, like what types of situations or what types of people or both? Both. (laughs) Uh-huh. There are certain people who just set me off just because their their type of personality. We all have certain kinds of people who kind of irritate us. Yeah. And do you really need to engage with that kind of a person or or a situation that is detrimental to you? If you need to, like a boss or something like that, then that's where you need to find strategies of how to deal with that person. But if it's someone who maybe is a, an acquaintance you see once in a while or a friend that is just really weighing on you, do you really need to have that stressor in your life? Because also stress is a big issue with bipolar. When when there's too much stress, it makes it too easy for the cracks to start to show. At least that's what I experience. Mm-hmm. And so eliminating this, as much stress in your life as you can um, by knowing the situations that you just don't need to engage in have, right. have also helped me. And I do – I have had a very flirtatious relationship with meditation. Uh, my friend Dan Harris, who wrote the book 10% yeah. Happier, uh, ABC, uh, he's an ABC anchor. He is you know, helping me with the meditation and he gives me some guidance and I'm trying to do it. In the book, I also talk about other times in the past where I tried to meditate. I do think that it's very helpful. Uh, I'm just not very good at it yet. But he keeps on telling me that's the point. No one's good at it. I can't. And once you can get that out of your I head, can't even start to. I, I I have Dan's book. I've tried and tried, but you know what is it about? Because some people start meditating and they just pick it up and they're like, "This is the best right. thing ever." The fact that I have to you know sit up with my feet on the ground and put my hands in my lap makes me mad. Like I just can't even get past the first oh, step. Okay. But you know how do you do it? What? Uh, well, I know. I mean, I, I, I don't. That, that's not the problem for me. My problem <laughs> is I sit there and my mind starts to wander, and I'm such a Type A personality person that I thought, well, you know, why don't I use this time to sort of visualize a lot, getting more money or getting right. being really thin or you know, getting the kind of clothes that I want or whatever it is. I feel I should be using that time for something. Yes, and yes. it really is not about that. And so I, when I do do it, I did it actually yesterday and I know I did my blood pressure before and after, and my blood pressure actually did drop a little bit. It did drop. And I was very surprised that there actually was a physical reaction to having meditated for five or 10 minutes. Wow. So how do you, you know, cause that's the same thing with me. I, I just, how do you get to the point where you say meditation is a valuable thing to do versus a waste of time. Cause to, to me, that's what I feel like too, that this is 15 minutes. I could be doing X, Y, and Z. Look at the laundry that's on the floor, you know, right. how, that's also a big struggle. I think. If, well, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's analogous to exercise or walking like this morning, right before speaking with you, I went out for my walk and I thought, oh, do I really want to do it now? I'll do it later, but it's going to be 90-something degrees. Do I really want to do it then? It's going to be sweaty and hot. No, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Do I really need to exercise? I'll walk around the (laughs) basement 25,000 times. And I said, get out and just do this. Just get out and walk. So I'm in right now I happen to be in Connecticut. So I walked around. We have this uh, this, uh, lane behind our property. So we walked. I walked uh, along the lane and up our road and – I'm glad that I did it. And I find that the more I do it, 
the more that I want to do it. And I know that sounds very sort of bumper stickery and, and sort of, uh, you know, hoopy doopy kind of thing. But I think the same thing relates to meditation. If you can just go, it's something I need to do. It's that mm-hmm. simple. I have to take vitamins in the morning or I have to, in my case, take medication. I've got to sit down and do meditation. I don't do it every day. But if you can just look at it as something that is important for you to do it, and I would try it, I'd give yourself 30 days of doing it. And if at the end of 30 days, you don't feel as if you've gotten some slight benefit from it, then mm-hmm. then pass on it. Yeah. Okay. I, I will do that. <laughs> okay. You and then, you reluctance. know, you write Dan Harris. You tweet Dan, Dan Harris. He's very good about repi- re- replying to people and see what he has to say. Tell him I sent you. I will. I will. Um, let's talk about the, there's this one and I have it highlighted here. You said one day everything was dark and lifeless. I wasn't good Mm -hmm. enough. I had to try, try, try harder, do better and work smarter. This, I underlined this and then I start it and then I put its flag on it because I feel that this is a very big theme in my life. And, and I don't know if it's when I kind of hit the, the lows, but it's like I've always got to be doing more and it's got to be faster and I've got to get ahead. How, since you've been diagnosed with, with manic depression and you're medicated and you feel like you've got things balanced, how does that, has that balanced out or is it still kind of a theme? Well, I think it's always going to be a theme because of my personality, but because of therapy, the talk therapy, we are addressing a lot of this, and it comes right it's it's comes right out of that root of feeling not good enough. And if I don't feel like I'm good enough, and you know, what's that thing from um, the help? You're good enough. You're, you're sweet sm- enough. You're yeah. not smart enough. <laughs> when she talks to the little child, good, I don't feel smart, those things about you. Is something? Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I don't I don't feel eyes as good. I just don't feel that. I, I don't feel that I'm, uh, you know, the core of me is is a good person. I, I, I for some reason I I've had that feeling. So in therapy, we really we talk about that. And what is the is that a, is that real or is that just a a, a false belief or, or what my shrink calls a grim unconscious belief. And if it is a grim unconscious belief, it's coming from somewhere else. It's not coming from reality. So the more I start to look at, I am not as reviled as I always thought I was. I wasn't as lazy as I always thought I was. I wasn't as bad as I always thought I was. As a matter of fact, I think maybe people do like me and I do a good <laughs> job and I've ac- I accomplish things. Also, I'm older than you and I think age starts to I think age just wears you down on some of these issues and uh-huh. you go, okay, I'm not as, uh, as bad as I thought I was. And, and having written this book, I have to say, while it was like walking, like crawling on my belly across broken glass for th- almost three years. I was going to ask you, so three years, you, it took you yeah, to three years from beginning to end, from starting to write the proposal until basically it was completely the last period was put in right before it went to the printer. Um, for me, the book, writing the book, I now have something extant. It exists. It's there. I personally think that it is a very good book. I'm very proud of it. I, I have owned that in such a way that I've never owned something else. And that can't be taken away from me now. That, that simply can't. And I think the more I can add to that pot of things that make me feel accomplished, 
the better off I'll feel. Because one of the analogies I use a lot in therapy and with people is I feel like my life is a bucket with a hole in it. And I'm pouring all this attention. I, I use all this attention from people, this love from people, this this adulation from fans on, on Twitter and Facebook and everything as filling up that bucket. But the problem is the hole is so big that it it eventually just empties out and I'm empty again. And I need to have a constant source of all that praise and attention and love because I just don't feel it internally. And what I'm trying to do now is really look at the truth of that. So therefore, that, that hole can either get a hell of a lot smaller or completely close up. And when a, the book comes along or when someone compliments me, like when you said you got a lot out of the book, letting that stay in the bucket and letting it not go away. So therefore, it fills me. Yeah. And I don't have to constantly feel I have to do more and more and more in order to be worthy of someone's love, someone's attention, someone's affection, someone's admiration or respect. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like the idea when you can, you know, I've got a lot of social media too, and I can get, you know, a thousand really nice comments or compliments, but I'll mm-hmm. just get one or two boogers out one. there and they stick with yep. you and they make the hole in your bucket bigger. And I yes. had a really, I've had to really concentrate on doing what you just said, allow the good things to stick with me and say, okay, I'm worthy enough to let this adhere. <laughs> It's like emotional oatmeal. It sticks to your ribs. You want <laughs> to look at it as emotional oatmeal. Yeah. So therefore, it just stays with you and it, 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 it comforts you and it can take care of you. And there's not this constant need of going out there and doing more and doing more and doing more. Now, it's very good to be active. But, but if you're – what drives you is to do more and do more and do more because you want the attention, the affection, the respect, and the admiration, then it's never going to end. Right. It will. It'll be uh, this endless cycle because it's basically you're being fulfilled from the outside as opposed to the inside. And I know it. That's another bumper sticker. I know that. And <laughs> but there's truth to that. Absolutely. Because if you can walk around feeling whole, and that and that hole inside of you has been closed up, then you'll be able to hold those things. Even a small compliment, you'll be able to hold, and it won't. It won't evaporate. Well, I think one of the things that you're probably feeling as well. From this, from finishing this book and putting it out into the world, is because it is such a work of value. And so, when mm-hmm. you get a compliment based off of this book, you know that you put it all out there and you've really put something out there that's of great value to people. And I think when we give to others in, in whatever way, and then there's a compliment or some oatmeal <laughs> to stick, mm-hmm. it, it's it's even more validating and important um, wh- where it's just not seeking attention for attention, I guess. is. I think that's true. I, I think that's very true. And I, for me, I know one of the things that I need to do is when I, like I'll look at good uh, good reads every once in a while to see how the book is being yeah. reviewed. And what people think of it. And then I'll see like a one-star review or a two-star review. And they're only ratings. And I call them drive-bys. Right. They don't even say why they're giving it a one-star. Yet I'll, I'll have five five-star ratings without any review. And I'm like, oh, isn't that wonderful? Look at that, Alan. I got five five-stars. And I have to say to myself, wait a minute. These should be have the same weight in my mind. Yes. If I really denigrate the two stars or the one star and get very angry about this drive-by, these five stars are drive-bys too. They just they don't explain why they like it. They just like it. So I, I just need to take all of that with a grain of salt. Now, 
Trust me, I have the thinnest skin. I have thinner skin than our president. So it's very hard <laughs> for me to do this, to take this. But I'm trying to look at all of this and go, my job was to write the best book I possibly could. And I did succeed in that. Yeah. Now, five years from now, could it be a better book? Probably. I'd be a better writer. I know that when I ended the book, I was a far better writer than I start when I was when I started. And I had to go back to the beginning and rewrite some of the beginning because I'd become a better writer. But I've done the best book that I possibly can now. It's in people's hands to take it as they wish. If they like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. They want to pass it on and they want to tell people about it. That's really wonderful. And I'm thrilled when people like the book. But what I'm really thrilled at most and what I really value is when people say, it has helped me. I've given it to a friend who I thought was bipolar. I've given it to a counselor, and he or she is reading it and using it when they're talking to their patients. Those are the kind of compliments that really do stick. That's that real emotional oatmeal for me because it's saying that the book is helping other people. Right. And that's, that is – you can't put stars on that. There aren't right. enough stars in the world to put on that. Absolutely. And I, I truly believe that this book – will help people and is helping people. I mean, it has helped me just kind of come to terms with where I am in my current mental health situation. I mean, I quit drinking, um, several, I don't even know how long it's uh, 2015 at this point, but you know, that exacerbates (laughs) any sort Mm -hmm. of, of mental situation. And then I've cut out the gluten and the sugar and the dairy and that kind of stuff too. But, you know, reading your, account of your childhood and and the struggles you've had, I mean, it just made me think, okay, I've taken care of myself physically the best I can, but yet I'm still having a lot of these struggles that Mm -hmm. you outlined in your book. So I appreciate it from a very personal standpoint as well. And, um, just, and it was, and it was funny. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just laugh out loud funny. Um, that, that was so important to me to write it because it's, it's, it's actually a funny story. To me, it's a funny story that when I wrote the first draft, I, I gave it to my partner, Alan, to read, and he was very excited. He read it, and when he was done, he said, this is really beautifully, beautifully written. I said, thank you. And then he said, but it is so dark. I'm like, what do you mean dark? This is a very funny book. He said, no, this is really dark. He said it also explains a lot of things, too. So that was very interesting <laughs> when he said that. Um, and I thought, well, he doesn't understand anything about, you know, books. If this were, if this, this was manuscript form, if it were book form, he would have thought it was very funny. So I gave it to a friend of mine who works in, uh, for Hollywood. She uh, did a lot of work for uh, The Walking Dead and Breaking Bad and Mad Men. And she read it. And when she was done, she said, this is brilliant. She said, I just think this is great. And uh, I said, do you think they'll ever make it into a TV series or something like that? She said, oh, my God, absolutely not. This is too bleak. This is too dark. I said, what are you talking? She said, David, I wouldn't read this again. It was too painful. I thought, what's wrong with these people? And then I thought, I'm going to give it to my editor because my editor understands everything. Gave it to my editor. She read it. Got a very long, very kindly, critical and critically kind email of things that needed to be changed. And she actually wanted more material. I ended up adding 18,000 more words because of what she had asked for. But then she had a little PS saying, do you think possibly after you make all these changes, you could do a humor pass? Because this isn't the book we bought. Oh. 
<laughs> and I thought, wow, okay, this is three people. And one was my, one was basically my unlawful husband. He, we were not married. I call him my unlawful husband. <laughs> one was a very, very dear friend of ours who understands narrative. And one is my editor. And they're all saying that this needs humor. And I realized that in my effort to write an important book about mental illness and about food and about also coming out and dealing with struggling with coming out, I had forgotten that I was funny. Right. So I had to go back in. So most of the humor that you're referring to, most of the things that you're finding funny were added after I'd written the book. Well, just like the start of chapter three, this had me like rolling. Um, my mother is a bloodhound for Jesus. She can sniff out sin before it happens the way some people smell burnt toast before a seizure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a bloodhound for Jesus. I love it. I mean, and there's lots of those type things. And so I'm glad you did another com- comedic pass because it's Thank definitely you. funny. And I, I find that when I get on a roll with blogging or writing and, you know, I'm trying to get a, an important point across, I'll do the same thing. I'll get very serious and people yes. will say, well, where's Meredith? <laughs> like, where, where's your funny? Yeah. And, and it is important yeah, it's to the, keep that. What I did was the right was that was the writing equivalent of suddenly lowering your voice and speaking louder because you're going to make an important point here. And it was just, there were, it was, it didn't work. And I, I look at it now and I realize, wow, I'm glad these three people saved me because it, I think it also, what it ended up doing when I added back, added the humor was that it, it mimicked the manic depression. It, the humor was there, so you have these ups and these downs with the humor. So things are funny and things are not, and they're tragic. And they're very, very funny. You're laughing out loud and you're crying. And that really kind of mimics what I go through and have gone through. And I wanted the reader to go on that roller coaster ride with me, but I wanted to make sure instead of them flying off the top of that first, that first hill and crashing down onto the cement, I wanted to make sure that I brought them in for a nice, smooth ending. Yeah. And you know, it was, it was very important for me to make sure that the very end of the book, which is the epilogue, which to me is one of the most touching and important parts of that book, really helped people just come into a for a very good, soft landing when they ended it, and they and they would feel very good about the, the the end of the book. Well, I did. It was great. Just absolutely wonderful. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. And everyone, please check out this book, Notes on a Banana. Um, banana. That's David's nickname. Isn't it adorable? It just tickles me. So I'm I'm thrilled with it. I will share this with everyone I know. And I appreciate your time. And I wish you... I, I, are you going to write another book? You must. You know, I don't know. Everyone keeps asking me. (laughs) I'm still getting over the the post-traumatic shock of this, the post-traumatic stress syndrome of of this. Um, I I don't know. I don't know what I would write about right now because I've. This is right up to nineteen. This nineteen two thousand fourteen when I was uh, fifty four years old two years ago. So I don't really have anything. (laughs) You're like I'm out of stories. (laughs) I'm out. I need to live a couple more years at least uh, to write something. But you know, we'll see. Uh, People have asked, and uh, you know, what I'm really working on. One of the things uh, that I also wanted to mention is working on the banana project, which is this whole notes on a banana thing. People have really taken to, and so now. We have what's called the Banana Project, which is we're asking people, and your listeners, and you perhaps if you'd like, to take a banana and write a message of love, support, and caring to someone that they love. Um, someone with mental illness, someone who's struggling with LGBTQ issues, 
or, or you're just a friend, a husband, a coworker, um, the world. I've written one actually to Prince Harry, uh, congratulating him on talking about the depression he experienced for almost 20 years after his mother was killed. Mm-hmm. And then taking a photograph of that banana and using the hashtag notes on a banana, putting it on social media because my publisher and I want to put together this digital quilt of all these images of all this love and support on bananas and people are holding them up to their face like a big smile yeah. some of them are putting them in their near books and um so that's one of the projects that i'm working on right now that's taking up a lot of my time i love it i love it i don't have any bananas right now but i'm gonna go get some bananas <laughs> oh good i'll put lots of notes. and what's what's great is there's actually some schools out there now that every day or, or a couple of times a week the teachers will write notes on the bananas for their kids and then pass them out at lunchtime Aww. so they take photographs of the kids or take photographs of these big piles of bananas with notes on them and i'm i am so honored and proud that that my mother something that my mother did which i thought was a quirky thing that just my mom did now the world is starting to do it's so cool it's so cool so david what is one last question what is something that you do on a consistent daily basis that you think sort of adds to your health and your happiness this this podcast is called the same 24 hours and it's the idea that we all have the same day we all have the same 24 hours but it's what we do within those 24 hours that makes all the difference. So what's what's one thing that you can point to that you do on a consistent basis that really makes your life better? Well, I think, um, I wish I could say consistent because my life changes so much uh, from where I'm at, either in the country or the city. But one of the things I think that's very important, I got this from Mario Hornbacher, who wrote a book called Madness, A Bipolar Life. And it's a real rough read, but it is a brilliant brilliant read and she's a a pulitzer prize nominated author um she says that one of the things that she does every day is to make sure she has meaningful connection with just at least one human being it can be on the phone with someone a friend it could be the the postal worker in your town but try and have contact with at least one other human being because at least with my illness there's so much about isolation and what i do as a writer is about isolation I can't write. I can't write in the middle of Times Square. Maybe there are some writers who can. I can't. I have to be very isolated and cocooned. So that contact with other people is something that I'm working very, very hard on um, to be able to say, okay, I did have a meaningful connection with another human being today. That's really good advice. Really good. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate it. I had a great time. Thank you.